once you get to the place where you're traveling to, you have so much more to think about than your shorts or like what you're wearing to dinner. Like you're going to museums, you're exploring the city, you're meeting up with your friends, you're like navigating, you know, the language barrier, you're exchanging your money. Like there are so many other things to think about than like whether you packed enough tank tops. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with Sarah Von Bargen about how to make travel lighter, safer, and more rewarding. Now you might recall that Sarah appeared on the show last season to talk about breaking your bad self-help habits. And one thing that I love about Sarah, who's been a friend for a long time, is that while she's not necessarily branded as a travel specialist, in the services that she provides at her yesandyes.org website, she does prioritize travel and lifestyle advice that she offers. I think it's cool that amid her money and relationship advice, she gives equal weight to travel insights, as if travel is as essential to the good life as money and relationships. Her advice skews towards women, but she has a lot of wisdom and perspective that applies to men as well. Today we talk about traveling light, what to wear on the road, and travel safety for women and men. We also talk about the joy of road trips, including Sarah's experience at the worst motel in Louisiana. And we talk about how to take the travel attitude home and make it a part of your yearly life routine. This episode is brought to you by Tortuga, makers of backpacks that allow you to bring everything you need on a trip, even a trip around the world like I took last winter, without checking your bags. Tortuga packs are designed specifically for the kind of vagabonding travel I endorse, and I lived out of a Tortuga this winter in Sumatra and Sri Lanka in the Republic of Georgia. Specifically, I used the Tortuga set-out pack in tandem with the lightweight day pack called the Tortuga Outbreaker, and as I talk about travel this season, I'll probably end up making reference to my winter journey and how those bags made it easier. Actually, in today's discussion with Sarah, she talks about how her approach to luggage is simply to pack everything in a bag that's small enough to fit in the overhead bin of an airplane, and that's exactly what Tortuga backpacks are designed to do. A lot of Sarah's travel advice applies to women on the road, and as it happens, Tortuga is about to debut a women's version of the 35-liter set-out pack that I used to travel around the world this winter. To check out the men's and the forthcoming women's set-out pack, as well as many other packs, go to rolfpots.com tortuga, and if you see something you like there and decide to order a pack, you can get a 10% discount by using the promo code DEVIATE. All right, let's listen as Sarah Von Bargen and I talk about travel. I am literally in my bathrobe with dirty hair, and I was like, oh, I don't want to turn on my camera. And then for some reason, I felt that the correct reaction to that was to click the red button. <laughs> I'm going to keep this as part of the interview, just so people know. <laughs> I'm very, I mean, people are constantly like, oh, you're so relatable. And I'm like, oh, just you wait. You have no idea. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I was actually, I was like, I know you as Sarah Von Bargen, Sarah Von Bargen. Um, and so I don't know you as a brand, like as the relatable, uh, you know, lifestyle consultant. So <laughs> like, like, what is the, um, the yes and yes brand? What are you? What do you I mean, honestly, like who I am, who I am in real life and who I am online, there's like a 95% overlap. I would just say that in real life, I swear in online, I very rarely swear. Um, and like, I don't know if you know me well enough to know this, but like, I really struggle with being a judgmental asshole. Huh. Um, and like, I, I recently took, do you know the Myers-Briggs? Yeah, not I, super well, but. Okay. So I'm an INTJ. Okay. Um, there's only 2% of the female population. 
And when you look at like other famous INTJers, I am not kidding. It's literally like Vladimir Putin and Joseph. (laughs) The only good one is Michelle Obama. Uh, And so like offline, I'm much more likely, and this is literally like, maybe like three people know this about me. I'm much more likely to be like, why can't they fucking get their shit together? Like, why is everybody always late? Like, why is everyone so incompetent? Uh, So I would say that, which is not a side of my personality that I'm particularly proud of. Uh Uh, And it's certainly not, it's something that I try not to put online, but otherwise like pretty much every, the way I am online and the way I am in real life um, are, are very aligned. So, so should, should my audience be a little bit scared of you now? Like how does this, <laughs> how does this INTJ uh, reveal itself? Oh my gosh. Well, I think what, what, like I was actually on a podcast um, earlier this week where the woman literally asked me, um, how does your brain work? Um, because she said, you know, you like the way you phrase things, like the thing, the ideas that you come up with you know, they're really unique and I don't see them elsewhere online, which is obviously an incredibly flattering thing um, to say. Um, But I don't know, I guess, I mean, we can only live inside our own brains, right? Um, So it's sort of hard to get enough distance on to figure out like why my my brain is different from other people's brains. But I would say that I'm, I'm probably much more um, strategic and potentially shrewd um, than the average human through no like intention that I guess I'm just I'm, my brain works in such a way that I'm very good at like finding opportunities and maximizing them interesting yeah well actually that that will lead right into our topic of conversation which is all sorts of uh, travel wheelhouse stuff you know the last time we talked from my podcast we talked a little bit about um, you know self-help advice and how to best navigate it whereas this time will be a little bit more travel centric but Yesandyes.org isn't really a travel blog. So how is how is that presented? Keeping in mind that you're sort of Vladimir Putin in in secret. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> um well, I would say my elevator pitch and my Instagram bio is I help people spend their time, money and energy on purpose. Um which is helping people align their values with how they spend their money and how they spend their time. And for me, for a long time, um pretty much since I was a teenager, one of my big values is exploration and, um, and travel. So one of the ways that I align my values with my time and my energy and my money is traveling a lot. Um, and so I would say that's sort of how, and I travel probably two to three months a year. Um, and, and yes, and yes has been online for 10 years, which is a, a huge amount of time in the internet world. Um, and I used to write much more about travel, um, both my own travel and I would have contributors who write about travel and I still love travel, but I've sort of reached the point where, I mean, I have 2000 blog posts in my archives. So I sort of struggle to think of anything new to say, like you guys packing cubes, they're amazing. Like, you know, like how many times, how many times can I write about packing cubes? Um, so I still, I love travel. It's still very much part of, um, part of my life. Um, but I sort of navigate travel through the lens of aligning my values with the way I spend my time. And that's one of the things that I teach about and talk about a lot. Yeah. Well, it feels like there's a, you know, there's a big world of advice out there online, lifestyle advice, especially for women. Would you say that your Mm -hmm. audience is, is skews female? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but it doesn't always 
dovetail. In fact, it rarely dovetails with travel in the sense that I love to travel. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's a fun thing about your site is that in addition to the finance stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and the habit stuff, you have a strong travel component. And, you Mm -hmm. know, this is sort of this is going to be a companion piece to my Jonathan Yevon interview, who I who I talked to yesterday, uh, who is a no baggage traveler, and um, wow. I know. Have you ever traveled with no baggage? No, no. I am. Okay. I'm too. I'm too vain. <laughs> I'm too vain for that. Well, I think you're also sane, and so I I was going to save this for the end, but I think I'll start with. Um, sort of your travel philosophy and travel tips, because I know that you're into traveling light. You're not a no baggage traveler, but actually you're probably, you say you're vain, but you're probably also sane, like you're more sane mm-hmm. than a no baggage traveler. Yes, so um, yeah. keep it in mind that you have not only been traveling um, for ages and you continue to travel. Um, mm-hmm. uh, let's just think a little bit, let's, let's skew this episode toward travel and let's start with your philosophy of traveling light. How do you do it? How do you recommend other people do it? And and why do you think traveling light is important? Oh gosh. Well, there's so many reasons why traveling light is important. Um, I would say from a strictly logistical point of view, like A, it saves you money because you don't have to pay to check your bags. B, um, it's better for the environment if we all have giant pieces of luggage, um, the way that affects um, the gas mileage in flights is huge. And also just flying in general um, has a pretty big carbon imprint, uh, footprint. So making that carbon footprint even bigger by taking huge luggage. Um, it's, I think we've all had the experience when we check luggage, we pack, you know, we pack all this stuff, we check our luggage, we get there, we go on vacation and we just wear the same thing over and over and over again. And to me, in the few situations where I did that, like it made me feel bad. Like, I felt like, ugh, what, like, why did I do this? Like, why did I spend $60 checking this luggage when I'm just wearing the same thing? And if you're moving from place to place and you're not using packing cubes as you should be, and, you know, it's packed really full and you pull your jeans out of the bottom of the suitcase and it spills all over and you spend 20 minutes every day repacking it, like, it just makes the travel experience less pleasant. Um, and And I don't like, like, I feel ridiculous, like, landing in Borneo and like having this four foot tall suitcase and like, you know, presenting it to the bellhop or something. And then they're like, Oh, here's another ugly American with their giant suitcase who's going to be here. Like it's, it's just unpleasant and embarrassing and expensive to me, not for everybody, but to me, it makes me feel like I've wasted money like I've wasted space, like I've made my carbon footprint bigger and that I'm sort of embarrassing myself as establishing myself as the sort of traveler who like needs eight pairs of shoes for five days. Well, you use Borneo as an example. That's a place where you don't have to travel very far off the beaten track in Borneo to find people whom, if you pack a giant suitcase, don't own that much in life, let alone travel with it, you know? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that packing light also... It's a very good, it's sort of a, a cleanse of sorts, because if you, um, a few years ago, I did a six week trip around Europe across different um, environments. So it was like cold, it was hot. I was in cities, I was in the country. Um, I was in Iceland, I was in Poland, and I did it all with a, with a carry on. Um, and it was just, it was, it was a really good, I'm already kind of a minimalist, but it was a really good reminder of like how little you need um 
to to feel and and I felt that I was pretty well dressed um, to feel comfortable to to look decent. And after you've had that experience, if after you've lived for six weeks out of a carry on and you come home to your giant closet, it's a good reminder of what you actually need to be happy in and what you actually need to to feel like you can look half decent when you go out into the world. So I think it's also a good sort of emotional cleanse and a and a check in for what you actually need. Yeah, this dovetails a little bit with uh, my no baggage travel conversation, which again is 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 probably more extreme than you really need to do. I think it's interesting that you can travel with no bags at all, but you don't you can travel light without just traveling with a toothbrush in your pocket. But mm-hmm. w- one thing that he is he observed is something the exact same the same thing that you said is that when you just travel, when you just throw some things into a bag and go you end up using so little of it. It's like you're, you're, it's like you're packing your fears and anxieties about what the oh, trip might yes. pre- present. So I want you to dig a little bit into that because that feels like um, it's not like you're just being late. You know, it's not like you're wearing the same clothes every day because you're being lazy. It's because mm-hmm. sort of travel puts you in a mindset that is actually different than the mindset when you're packing for travel. So let's dig mm-hmm. into that a little bit. Absolutely. Well, I think one thing that I remind myself of constantly is Sarah, they have that where you're going. Like, unless you are truly hiking in rural Bolivia, which I've done, um, and and even there, there's like a corner pharmacy where they have shampoo. Um, 99% of the time, the thing that you're worried about that you're going to forget or you're not going to like have it during the situation where you need it, it's incredibly likely that they have it where you're going. Um, I think also a lot of us, maybe more likely to be women, but a lot of us, we have this concern about like, we we don't want to look like a tourist. We want to blend in, which I totally understand and I appreciate, but let's be real. Like I, it doesn't matter. Like I, if I go to Borneo, no one is going to think that I'm from there, <laughs> you know, like yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter what I wear. So I can like go ahead and pack the zip off hiking pants because no one's going to be like, Oh gosh, I bet you're a local. Um, and even in, you know, Stockholm, like I am of Swedish heritage. I went to Stockholm and even though I wore what I thought was fairly stylish stuff, I'm still pretty sure that, that nobody necessarily thought that I was a local. Um, so I understand the desire to a overpack because you're concerned that like, maybe they're not going to have your specific shampoo or like you're going to get caught in the rain and you need both an umbrella and a raincoat or that you're going to look like a tourist, but a, you're probably going to look like a tourist anyway. B, they probably have what you need. C, like some of, I think all of us, some of our favorite travel stories are about like, Oh my gosh, remember when we got caught in that monsoon and we didn't have raincoats and we like stood under that overhang and ate street meat for an hour and like got to know the people in the restaurant, which is not to say that you should try to be unprepared, but honestly, some of the most character building and most hilarious stories come from situations that didn't, you know, necessarily work out according to plan immediately. Yeah, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking, I just took an umbrella around the world and never used it. I took a a, a yellow umbrella for a ride around the world, and I packed pretty light. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just one of those things where when it rained, just for whatever reason, it didn't make – there's an idea if you you want to – do some triage on what to use. If you have an embarrassingly yellow uh, umbrella, I think I borrowed <laughs> it from my mom. It's like, should I really open this weirdly yellow umbrella or can I just shoulder it through the rain? And I ended up 
just either wearing a, a rain jacket, like when I was riding a motorcycle, or just not using it at all and just dealing with the rain. That, that's one thing that came mm-hmm. to mind is, as you were talking. Another one is, is a total aside, but I remember when I first started traveling tw- 20 years ago, being in these conversations where, you know, the travelers would be in an argument about, you know, who's a traveler versus who's a tourist on a train. And every single Chinese or Indian person on the train would see them as identical, right? Yes, yes. Like the difference between like, are you wearing jeans or are you wearing zip up hiking pants? Are you wearing Adidas or are you wearing your hiking boots? Like, yeah, if you Americans and North Americans are pretty easy to spot. And like whether you're wearing the zip off pants or not, people can probably tell that you're not from around there if you are traveling through Asia and you're white. Do you have a, a philosophy on zip off pants? Do you find them useful or do you think they're an extravagance? Um, I actually, I don't um, have zip off pants, but that's more, again, because I'm vain. Um, I, and and what I am more inclined to do is um, just have hiking pants that I wear for hiking. Um, but I am not, like, if I, if I was like, I'm going to do the, you know, I'm going to hike up to um, base camp and, you know, the weather's really going to vary. And also, again, everybody who's doing that hike is it is a traveler or a tourist? There's no confusing about like, am I a local Nepali? Like I, I would get um, zip off hiking pants, but like if I'm if I'm going to um, like this fall, I'm going to Morocco and then I'm going to the UAE to visit a friend and we're not doing like active stuff really. You know, we're just like poking around markets and like going to the beach. Like I wouldn't have zip off pants for that scenario because to me, zip off pants are for activities. Yeah, well, I went around the world with no luggage, actually. It was on my no-baggage trip. I don't know if you remember it or not. It was Yeah, oh, I totally remember that, yeah. I had zip-off pants that I never zipped off. Like, I, I, uh-huh. I had them, but I never used the shorts mode. So mm-hmm. um, that's one of those things where I, I think you shouldn't be a snob about zip-off pants, but you should think, am I really going to use these zip-off pants, or am I going to be more comfortable just with a light pair of shorts and a light pair of pants that I wear independently yeah. of each other? Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you have uh, do you have certain tricks you use to trick yourself into traveling light? Like, are you a, a carry on only traveler, or do you check baggage? Um, well, my trick is that I literally don't own a big enough suit. I only own I own one piece of luggage. Well, rather, I have a backpacking backpack for like long term hiking, um, and then I have a carry on, and that's all I have. So that's my trick is that I don't have a I don't have a big piece of luggage, <laughs> um, and I'm also cheap, and I hate paying to, to, uh, check luggage. And because I've, I've traveled carry on only pretty much the only time I had real luggage was when I moved, I I went to graduate school in New Zealand and then I moved back to America. So obviously I had big luggage then, but, but after that, I've only I've carried, I've done carry on only. And so now it's just like, that is, that is the foregone conclusion that, that I would do carry on only. Like there's, there is no other option in my mind. I wonder now that we're talking about this, we're, we're, there's, it's, there's a lot of common sense versus travel anxiety going on here, that sometimes we pack things out of travel anxiety. And it actually, mm-hmm. it's common sense that we just, we travel in a lighter way anyway. You can't pack mm-hmm. everything from your house into your suitcase. You're going to have to pick and choose anyway, so why not choose extra light? But have you ever heard of anyone, and I'm just throwing this out there, and, and listeners can chime in and email me if they know of an example have you ever heard of anyone that said, "Oh, I didn't have that hair dryer and my trip was ruined"? Have you ever heard like oh my the gosh. opposite? Uh, not off the top of my head. I mean, 
I'm sure at some point in my trip, there was something that I wished I packed that I didn't. But honestly, one of my favorite things to do when I'm traveling is like my entire um, toiletry bag is made up of random toiletries from all over the world because, you know, when I run out of my American moisturizer, I just buy more in Peru or in Greece or in Iceland. Um, And so I actually have a lot of fond memories, like physical mementos from times when I ran out or forgot something. And now every time I use it when I'm traveling, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I remember the Airbnb in Reykjavik, you know, and how my moisturizer spilled all over. And then I went down to the corner store and bought this. So, I mean, I've certainly had situations where I forgot something and it was vaguely annoying, but it actually ended up being like a lovely, funny memory. And I bought you know, some interesting product because I forgot my stuff at home. Totally. Yeah. My toiletry kit is such a museum of my previous travels. Yes. Um, including U.S. travels. What about clothes? Do you find, like, have you ever bought um, a sweater in another country because you got cold? Or have you ever found that a packing strategy left you lacking and so you went off to look for the, a new pair of wool socks? How does that work? Um, well, my because I've been traveling for so long, I have a pretty good... Um, understanding of what I need to pack. Um, and my approach is basically all the larger pieces that I pack, my my shoes, dresses, shirts, um, they're all, they all match each other. They can all be mixed and matched. They can all be layered with each other and they're all in pretty neutral tones. Um, and then I'll pack, you know, maybe like a few bracelets, a colorful scarf, like a few things that are colorful and that also match each other. Um, but that's basically what I do is just neutral things, that can all be paired together and that can be layered. So if I needed to, I would have a tank top, a short sleeve shirt, um, a long sleeve t-shirt, um, a light jacket, and then like a windbreaker plus a scarf. And I can wear them all together. And that's what I wear in Iceland. And then, you know, when I'm in Spain, I can just wear the tank top and that's fine. I'm curious, you know, you you deal with, you have a lot of readers for your blog. You have a lot of clients for your for your various services you offer. What kind of travel anxieties uh, are you coming up against? Like what, how do you frame please pack light advice to your readers and clients? Well, I try to pack everything through the lens of like how this benefits you. Like you will save money. You will be less stressed out. um, You will be proud of yourself for doing this. Um, it makes the trip easier. I just try and I try and frame it through the the benefits of doing it rather than any like shame or obligation. Um, and also just sort of a lot of pep talking like you can totally do this. You can abs- it's it's if you have, you know, finished a, a rigorous academic program, if you have bought a house, if you have given birth to a child, oh my god, you can absolutely pack in a carry-on. That's a good way of thinking it. I think that there's so many things at home where we really we really focus our effort to to get things done, to accomplish things in an impressive way. Um, that actually traveling, packing light is is comparatively simple. You know. Oh my gosh, yes. And also, like I also tell them, like if if it doesn't work out, you can just buy stuff wherever you are and buy a cheap duffel bag and bring it home. Like just try it. And you don't have to do it again next time if you don't want to. And if you get there and you realize it's not for you, then go ahead and buy a bunch of sundresses and full-size shampoos, buy a cheap tote bag and bring it home. But just try it. I think that's that's a key piece of advice, you know, that um, if you just try it and if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. But I, I would say 95% of the people who would 
pack light or pack lighter than before end up not missing anything, or at least beyond the first 24 hours where they where that anxiety is still hovering. Once you get past that, then I don't think that there's that many negative ramifications to traveling light. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, like, once you get to the place where you're traveling to, you have so much more to think about than your shorts or, like, what you're wearing to dinner. Like, you're going to museums, you're exploring the city, you're meeting up with your friends, you're, like, navigating, you know, the language barrier, you're exchanging your money. Like, there are so many other things to think about than, like, whether you packed enough tank tops. That's another key thing, too, because travel is all about the experience, you know, mm-hmm. uh, unlike at home. At home, you can really calibrate your life so that it's experience oriented, and that's a good thing. But you're sort of surrounded by all your possessions at home, mm-hmm. uh, whereas on the road, you can't take all your possessions. So, of course, it's going to be experience based. And I think that most travelers end up not even if they have 10 outfits they never wear, they never think about them. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. the whole point of traveling heavy. Is yeah. That, they're there to, to put your mind at ease while you're packing, but they're doing absolutely mm-hmm. nothing for the trip. They're not a part of the experience. Yeah. And then you have to carry them around. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. So uh, does does your INTJ judgmental asshole ever <laughs> – does it ever rear itself or – or um, have you have you managed to just be sort of the supportive uh, massager of advice in this regard? Well, I mean, I I have got like I have enough like social like understanding of like how the social boundaries work, <laughs> you know, that I I would I don't think I would ever like vocally say to someone, especially a stranger, like what are you doing with that giant suitcase? That is ridiculous. Like you're an embarrassment. Like I would never ever 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 say that. Um, I think I'm like, maybe if I'm traveling with someone, we're traveling together and they, you know, are sitting on top of their luggage and they're feeling really stressed out about it and they're shoving stuff in, it keeps popping back open. Um, I might say something like, you know, I've found that, you know, usually I only end up, if I pack a lot, I only end up wearing like 10%, you know? So is there anything that, you know, maybe are you doubling up on anything um, I think that's probably the way um, I would where I would handle it. But I also I try really hard to engage in. Um, so I have two um, teenage stepsons, and the parenting technique that we use is called natural consequences, which is called which is basically like you know you try to you try to help people or you pride them with like okay so here here's what's going to happen if you do that. But after a certain point, you just let them figure it out on their own. You know, so mm. you know I might I might say like, oh, you know, like I see that you have like four cocktail dresses and we're hiking in Nepal. So maybe, maybe you only need two, but I'm not going to like beat somebody over the head with it. Like they, they're smart. My friends are all smart. They can, you know, they can have the experience of bringing a giant suitcase to Nepal, only wearing 10% of it. And then having the very obvious epiphany that maybe that wasn't the world's best way to go. And then they realize themselves without their asshole friend, like making them feel bad about it. That's another good thing to remember. I think that that there's so much learning involved in travel in general. And when you pack that small bag and maybe if, if it's the first time you've traveled light and you're nervous about it, then you just learn to make shifts. And it's and it, mm-hmm. it happens so quickly. Even when I traveled with no bags at all back in 2010, the, the immediate challenges were gone within a couple of days. I just got used to traveling that way. And in mm-hmm. a way, in a way, it was less narrative. Like I made some videos, but the videos were just about my travels. They weren't about the the amazing headaches of traveling with no luggage because those headaches ceased to be an issue after a couple of days. Yeah. And, 
And actually, I, was, I, I actually don't think of you as a judgmental asshole, Sarah. Maybe I. Well, maybe that's because I've, I've kept it a secret. <laughs> but I'm just thinking, if you wanted to do a TV show, that you could put, you could do the the travel light ethos through fear and shame. <laughs> like, do you know how you're affecting your carbon footprint by bringing that giant suitcase? Look at this chart. Right. You could be the. I don't know. It's. Actually, I don't know if anybody watches that kind of television anymore, maybe, but uh, you could be just that that beloved jerk who makes people feel oh, yeah. bad, right? Yes, I could be like, is it Gordon Ramsay except for travel? Uh, exactly, exactly. So something to think about, Sarah, as you're expanding your <laughs> <Okay>. brand. <laughs> I, will, I will stop stifling my um, judgmental nature. <laughs> except you have to be nice to me, so. Yes, that, yes, I will. <laughs> um, so... Travel is something like I, I went through your travel category on your blog, and there's just pages and pages of advice. A lot of it is destination specific. Mm-hmm. What kind of travel advice do you usually find yourself giving, and what kinds of questions, moving beyond just traveling light, but you can include traveling mm-hmm. light, what kinds of questions do you get from people? What are people afraid about these days? Uh, what are they obsessing on as travelers? Oh, gosh. Well, so I get a lot of questions about traveling safely um, and solo female travel. Um, And I also get because I love road trips um, and because of so my husband's a climatologist. So our house is very our family is very, very conscious of carbon footprint. um, And a depressing thing that I found out is that um, air travel has a terrible carbon footprint. So like even though I'm a vegetarian and even though. You know, I really try to buy things secondhand before I buy them new. My carbon footprint is probably bigger than a lot of people's because I fly so much. So I've been sort of trying to transition into more road trips because as counterintuitive as it sounds, tra- like domestic driving travel actually is weirdly much better for the environment. Um, so I do a lot of domestic road trips and I get tons of questions about like, how did you find this awesome stuff? Or I'll go to some city that people haven't heard of that's really great. And they'll say like, how did you even, how did you find out about Paducah, Kentucky? Because nobody's heard of it, but it's really lovely. Um, so I think those are the questions I get the most are safety, solo travel. And like, how did you even know about that place? I've never heard about it. How do you find out about cool travel destinations? Like, how do you even Google that? Yeah, you know, that's one thing that that I've always known about you is that uh, road trip travel, I mean, you can appreciate the vagabonding ethos in its in its sort of international sense. Um, but I, I wrote the book Vagabonding, and my first trip was uh, eight, uh, seven and a half months in North America, in the U.S. and Canada. So I can mm-hmm. – I'm a big fan of that sort of domestic travel. And I, in fact, I can think of a funny – Story you told me once about you you checked into a, a hotel like in Louisiana and it was just such a skanky place. Oh my god, I I had to immediately check back out. It was yeah. and like when I checked back out, um the the clerk was literally like cor- like yes, correct. Like you shouldn't have. <laughs> like right. I was kind of surprised they even let me check in. Like it was it was like something out of like Breaking Bad, you know visible. I don't, I don't even know what I was doing. If anybody has driven from Minneapolis um, to Louisiana, there is a stretch of of road that I don't know if this is true, but it feels true that it's a two lane highway with no lights that literally is just going through the swamp for like two hours. And it was dark. And I'm driving from, I think, Texarkana into Baton Rouge. There are no lights. You know, there's a semi like tailgating me. And so by the time I get into Baton Rouge, I'm like, whatever. I'm just going to the first hotel that I pull into. So of course I pull into some like $47 a night hotel and 
there are what appears to be like people with visible sores on their faces in their pajamas in the lobby. And somebody's talking about how like her cousin's going to pay for her monthly hotel room, but he doesn't have the money because he's lost his job. And there's like one of those, I think it's like the computer that's like beige and like deep with like, with like green font and like the giant keys. Um, And then when I went into my hotel room, there was a, um, what appeared to be a bloodstain on the carpet. And then when I searched the hotel name on the internet, like it had a bunch of one stars and people saying like, they literally like make meth in room 201. And I was like, Oh, I'm just leaving. And they just, you know, completely refunded me and were like, yes, that, that is the correct, that is the correct choice. It's like you traveled into this completely other universe that's very much a part of America, but is not usually where you want to go as a traveler. Super, especially like, you know, I was like 32 blonde with my like nice purse by myself. Like it was... It's not my not my best travel moment, but now a hilarious story because I didn't die. And you did something that was important, which is you said, nope, not going to do it. I mean, there's that actually in, in this particular situation, I think maybe even the nicest of nice women would not put up with that. But you didn't say, OK, I'm, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be rude and ask to check yeah. out that you, you went with your gut. Without yeah. being paranoid, you you assess the situation for the the meth lab that it was, and you asked yeah. to be to be refunded. Yes, yeah, like and and I am you know like I'm very much like a nice Midwestern lady, but I think one of the things that travel has taught me is like you need to advocate for yourself. Like nobody else is going to do it. Like nobody else is going to be like, hey, FYI, this city that you're not you're not familiar with Baton Rouge, but this is a bad neighborhood. You're by yourself you shouldn't be here like that, that they want my money. They're not going to say that to me. And, you know, like it's not worth getting attacked or murdered to like be polite. Yeah. And that's, that's worth considering anywhere in the world that mm-hmm. any city has places that are going to be a little sketchy and that, that, you know, the people there are going to have maybe not your best interests in mind. And it's just without being paranoid, you know, without, yeah. cause I think sometimes, Travel being a traveler implies a certain ignorance because you don't know where you are, um, mm-hmm. and if if you're in the Marriott and suddenly you 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 get an idea that you're being you know that you, the person waiting on you is going to steal from you that might not be as realistic as yes. as a blood stains on the floor yeah. situation. <laughs> yes, but, yes, absolutely. But one thing that I want to grab on here is that a, a certain percentage of people listening to this might think, well, I'm never going to go to Louisiana, which is probably the wrong oh, reaction yeah. to have. So yeah. keeping in mind that there are some real fears to contend as a traveler, mm-hmm. how can you navigate the fears without letting those fears keep you at home? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, so there is a website. I want to say it's called Numbeo, N-U-M-B-E-O. I'm not positive uh, I'm sure we can Google it and you can put it in your uh, in your show notes. But um, it allows you to compare two cities to each other directly in terms of crime rates, governmental corruption, violence against women, blah, blah, blah. Um, and many, many, many American cities are more dangerous than international cities. Um, so even even cities that you might think about like, I'm sure that there are people who are listening who are like, ooh, Bangkok. Um, the, the crime rate of Bangkok is not higher than the crime rate of Minneapolis. 
Um, which is not to say, and I'm not saying this try, to try and make people be afraid of American cities, um, but I think it's, I think that in our concerns about international safety, um, we sort of fail to realize that if you live in a major American city, the crime rate of the international city that you're going to is is, is honestly maybe lower. Um, so I think just for me, just knowing those statistics is is a really good reality check. And also, for what it's worth, I am a blonde woman, I've, which I say because I stick out very obviously in, you know, like 90% of countries. If I'm outside of Western Europe, I'm very visibly not from there. Um, I've traveled to 35 countries, many of them developing, often by myself, and I have never had any serious trouble. I've never been mugged. You know, like the worst I've encountered is like low-key street harassment, um, which honestly also happens in Minneapolis. <laughs> um so I would say, like, if I can do it, anybody listening can absolutely do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm just thinking that a lot of the crime that actually happens. Actually, I was talking to, to Seth Kugel for an episode. I'm not sure if it's going to run before this or after it. He's the he's the the New York Times frugal traveler. He says that the actual dangerous things that happen to travels are are rental vehicle accidents and and swimming accidents, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think as far as you know, there's harassment. There's certain harassments that's that's specific to women, but then there's also, literally, in the place where you're the safest, you're also at the most risk. So you're like you're in the tourist zone around the tourist attraction. You're going to be at the Eiffel Tower, but that's mm-hmm. also where pickpockets probably um, prey on tourists yeah. because that's where tourists are. You know, yeah. And and nobody yeah. and pickpocketing is is not necessarily a dangerous crime. It's just that there's there's certain things that calibrate themselves to tourist zones, which tend to be yeah. safe. But there's these annoyances. It's it's tourist zones are where the scam artists are going to be, and the and mm-hmm. the, the souvenir vendors, and the guy who pretends to be your friend but is really going to his uncle's souvenir yeah. shop. Yeah. Um, and then then one more aside. Um, I was just thinking you're talking about these dangerous American cities. Um. Sometimes one one solution there. Obviously, you should stay away from from Meth Alley in Baton Rouge. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I went to Cleveland recently, um, and Cleveland doesn't always have the best reputation as a city. But um, like, I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and then I went to a baseball game, and then I was at a bar after the baseball game, and the, the Cleveland guy I sat next to, who's an off duty cop, was just completely disgusted at me for having gone to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which he saw as sort of this corporate soulless place. Um, and then he started telling me where the better places to go. And so I think even in an American city without the best reputation, if you go to the obvious place and then start talking to people who live there, they'll say, you know, even the guy sweeping up at the Rock Hall of Fame will say, ah, if you really want to see Cleveland, go to this bar or go to this Mm -hmm. park. And so I I think this goes back to the fact that we're all pretty smart. And, And so when we pack, we pack too much because... We don't know what to expect, but if we pack light, we can figure it out. And before mm-hmm. we leave, we have all these fears about places because of reputations. But when we get to the place, we can figure it out too. If it means asking for your money back when there's bloodstains on your Baton Rouge yeah. hotel, or mm-hmm. or going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and realizing that the Clevelanders there have some ideas for you that might go beyond the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's also like it makes you really proud of yourself and you realize like how capable you are, how able you are to adjust to things, how you can roll with the punches. Like without exaggeration, when I I um, moved to Taiwan to teach English when I was, I think, 22. And when I came back, my friends 
literally told me like you have changed dramatically you are so much more laid back you are so much more like you can roll with the punches you don't get angry about stuff you find solutions and that's what traveling can do for you like you realize that you are so much more capable than you give yourself credit for yeah i think this is something i addressed in vagabonding but in the almost 20 years since the book has been back well actually in the 16 years since the book has been out Uh, You know, I say that put your travel experience on your resume because travel teaches you things. And I've had Mm -hmm. dozens of people who come back and say, yes, you know, that is one of the most Mm -hmm. salient things I learned from the book. Because travel, if you're not just out there with your bong on the beach, Mm -hmm. then travel is going to teach you so much that's so applicable and really give you a head start and a leg up on the other people who may be smart, but have not put themselves outside of their local comfort zone. Absolutely. And because, you know, our our world is becoming much more global. So if you have traveled extensively through Asia and you work in an industry where you have partners in Hong Kong and Beijing and China, like you are going to be a much better account manager than somebody who is completely unfamiliar with those with those cultures. Yeah. And and even I mean, there's just a million ways this can apply, you know, like like so the guy the guy um, who's on the presentation committee is Gujarati American. And you can say, oh, yeah, I went to Gujarat, you know. Mm-hmm. I went, I went to, you can't get a drink there, so you have to go to the Island of Dew. And I and I met so many Gujaratis there who were ashamed to be partying in the Island of Dew. And then, then pretty soon you have this personal connection, which they, they teach you, they teach you in, in business school or wherever these, these strategies. But actually having been in the world can give you a context through which to relate to so many different people that mm-hmm. you couldn't have if you just stayed at home. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned a couple of things that I want to touch on. Um, one is solo female travel. And not, and not mm-hmm. all of my audience are women, but uh, men, if you're listening to this, you might listen in because sometimes men forget that it can be a little bit different if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I read, I was reading my travel journal from 25 years ago from my first vagabonding trip about, around America. And it's interesting how many times I would stop in that journal and say, wow, I talked to a woman and I forgot sometimes how it's a little bit different if you're a woman who's traveling or just a woman who's walking around the city. So mm-hmm. Both for the perspective of the men in my audience and for the direct advice of the women in my audience, what are some things you tell solo female travelers to keep them safe and balanced, but yet not so scared that they won't leave home? Absolutely. Well, I would say probably the single most important thing that I would say is in every lonely planet, and I imagine there are plenty of other, there are plenty of message boards that do this, but in every lonely planet for a country, there is a specific section that says like for women travelers. And in that section, they will tell you sort of what the cultural norms are in terms of modesty, which I think is Mm. super important. Um, And also in terms of sort of like how men of that culture view women. I was in India for six weeks and I had sort of a little bit of a different situation because I was working at a school and living in basically a dorm with other professional Indian women. So I was like, embedded in the culture. Like I was not, you know, going to Taj Mahal or anything, but I had read ahead. And I, so I only ever wore, um, Salvar Kameez tops, which are, you know, down to your wrists or maybe down to your, um, elbows, um, and like shorts that went over my knees or, or pants. And they were very comfortable. I loved them. They were colorful and cute. I really liked them. And I didn't, I very rarely got harassed. Um, And then later we went to Kerala 
which was much more touristy. And I saw tons of, of foreign women who were wearing short shorts and tank tops, which is obviously like totally fine at home, but Indian men are not accustomed to that. And so these women who were dressed that way were getting just harassed up and down the street. Like just, it was just terrible. Um, and that could have been avoided if they would have, you know, done a little bit of research about what is or is not appropriate. And I think when in doubt, if if you get to a country and you realize like, ooh, like I didn't read up about that, just look at what the local women are wearing and cover up the same stuff that they're covering up. Yeah, well, Kerala, in a way you don't blame the tourist women because Kerala is hot, right? That's, yeah, it's super hot, yeah. Uh, that's a, India in general is hot, but Kerala is way down south. Kerala is great, but it's not it's not a, um, a cool weather place. And so- <laughs> They were probably just using the same logic that applied in Manchester, England, um, or Birmingham, Alabama, or wherever they're from. And then suddenly they are this. And I saw this a lot in India, that that basically uh, you're sort of advertising a hey sailor version of yourself that you had no idea that you were advertising. And I think uh, in the in the Me Too environment now, there's a lot of pressure on men to behave better, which is good. But you can't bring that assumption as a traveler, right? The, yeah, yes, they, yeah. Like it's like you cannot take your cultural, your American cultural assumptions and expect that um, men across the world are going. I mean, it would be awesome, but sadly, that's not really. You can't take any cultural assumption, regardless of if it relates to gender or sexual harassment. It it does not apply to other people's countries. And this is something that happened to me when I was traveling in the Middle East. Just just sort of the way. Like I was traveling in Muslim countries for five months. This was this was maybe sixteen or eighteen years ago, and then I went to Israel, where women aren't covered as much. And I just I, I didn't harass anybody, but I just felt suddenly it was like going through puberty again. Like suddenly I could <laughs> I could see women. Yeah. And, and so I think there's some countries that you go to where women culturally are conditioned to cover up, and you are you know if you're wearing the short shorts because it's hot, you're actually giving men something that they've never ever seen before, and they have no preparation to deal with at all. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's that's a good thing to remember that um, regardless of whatever climate or conversation is going on back home, you are a guest in a foreign place. And actually, local women might be a little irritated, you know, if yes. if yeah. if they've taken the time to cover themselves up, they're being very fashionable, they're staying cool in a warm environment, and then you're sashaying around in your short shorts, and you're distracting their brothers and boyfriends in a way that is sort of irritating to them. Yeah, yeah. So I would say read the section on women travelers in the Lonely Planet, or just Google it. Um, and the other thing that I would say, and this is a total bummer, but um, don't go out drinking by yourself at night. Mm. So, I mean, like maybe if you're staying in a hostel and the hostel has a bar that's on like the ground floor and you can like just go upstairs to your room afterwards. But I would say in general, and honestly, like I don't go out drinking by myself in American cities either. Um, And so, I mean, you know, maybe some people want to do it and you should certainly try. But I have just found like the amount of like I have to drink my drink immediately. Like I can't go to the bathroom because I'm afraid somebody's going to tamper with it. Like somebody wants to talk to me and then I'm like, Ugh, you know, like, are they going to follow me? Uh, now I'm in the cab by myself and, you know, mm. like nobody knows where I am or when I'm going to be back. So, I mean, it's kind of a bummer, but for me, I just don't go out drinking by myself. And I do, you know, the vast majority of my travel stuff during the day. So if I, if I left my Airbnb at 8 a.m., and then I was out and about all day. Like I don't want, I don't want to do anything else. Like I'm exhausted from walking around and looking at things. Yeah, and I think there's another opportunity too, where 
it gives you a chance to be an extrovert. And it's like, well, hey, Greta from Germany, I'd rather not go to the bar by myself. Would you like to have a drink with yes, me? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Or if you're in Airbnb and like you're renting out a room, um, like maybe the hosts want to go with you or if you meet other people in your hotel, like there are totally ways to do it. But just in general, I would say like taking a cab across town in the dark to a bar on the other side of town where you drink, you know, five cocktails by yourself and then get back in a cab <laughs> drunk and like then like, you know, clumsily try to get your key in the lock of your Airbnb while you stand on the street. Like, I mean, that's not I don't really think that's a good idea even at home. Yeah. And this can apply to guys, too. Yeah. Um, yes. And it's obviously more intensified for women, especially in countries where maybe it's not the local norm for women to stumble five blocks home from the bar at two in the morning. Mm -hmm. But also with men, you're, you're sort of an – especially if you're visibly an outsider, um, you're sort of advertising yourself as a person who maybe can be messed with a little bit. And I'm not, I'm yeah. not saying that – that uh, men are always getting robbed on the street in the middle of the night. But it's just sometimes it's bad form to be the drunk guy in an unfamiliar place at two in the morning because mm -hmm. you're just you're just opening yourself up to variables that you need not open yourself up to. Yeah. Um, and I actually, when I was in Sumatra and Sri Lanka this winter, I didn't drink at all just because I thought, well, I'm not really in places where local people drink that much. Um, mm -hmm. And so why should I be the one foreigner who um, – who uh, is always nursing a beer. And I don't want to be a killjoy. You know, to those in my audience, you can definitely drink. There's a lot of fun to be had on the road. But just be smart about it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I will also say, I've read that, um, that I think it's psychologists or maybe even just MDs have shown that consuming drugs or alcohol in a new place um, dramatically intensifies their effects. Hmm. So if you, and also altitude. So if you are a flatlander like me, and then I go to Kathmandu, not only am I going to get drunk faster because of the altitude, but I'm also going to get drunk faster because it's a different place. So it's it's much easier to misjudge how much alcohol you need to get drunk when you're in a new place. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of there's the, this big core of common sense, you know, um, mm -hmm. don't be paranoid, but think about common sense and think strategically about what you're up against. Because at home, you know, drinking socially is a habit you get into when you're quite young and you don't think about it much. But suddenly you throw 30 more variables in a foreign city into mm -hmm. that. And it's not necessarily going to be dangerous every time, but it certainly opens it, yourself up to, to uncomfortable situations. So. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about foreign travel type situation, but since you are – such a diehard road trip where I know that some winters I've talked to you and you're like, hey, I'm going to be on the road in the U.S. for five weeks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you're somebody who has – you're an example. I'm sure I've mentioned you to people before as someone who didn't just take that dream trip and then just travels a week or two a year. You travel in such a way that you can really prioritize travel, oftentimes domestic travel, mm -hmm. um, as a as a grown-ass adult. Mm -hmm. um, and so what kind of advice would you have for people who want to um, diversify and, and sort of deepen their travels closer to home in the U.S.? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I would say for me, I think just like most things, it all starts with like self-understanding and self-knowledge about like what sort of trips you like, um, where you can sort of make tweaks and make allowances. I realized that for me, I can get almost as much joy out of like a four day weekend as I can out of a, you know, 
three week road trip. And I'm, I get, I'm just lucky because my brain works that way. But once I realized that about myself, it was so much easier to like, okay, well, then I'm going to take four day weekend trips like every month. Um, and I also realized like what parts of travel felt really great to me and which parts of travel are unenjoyable to me. And so then I could sort of work to do more of the stuff that I liked and avoid the stuff that I didn't. Um, and also like, I'm obviously in a, in a very lucky position that I'm self-employed and I can work anywhere that has, um, a Wi-Fi connection. So, and I think a lot of self-employed people, it's easy to fall into the habit of, even though you're self-employed, like still working a nine to five day and still just taking the weekends off. Um, and also for most self-employed people, your, your career often sort of like expands to fill the space that you give it. And it's very easy to end up working 10 hours a day. And it's very easy to not really take vacations. Um, so I would really encourage anyone who's self-employed to like, look at your calendar and block things off. And also the statistics around Americans, not actually taking all their vacation time. I think something like 40% of Americans don't take all their vacation time. Um, so if you have vacation time, actually use it. And I think, so my husband has a, has a nine to five job and he only has only, he has um, three weeks of vacation, which is, you know, like that's not nothing, but it's certainly not the same as me who can just take it anytime I want to. Um, so we have worked hard to like be very strategic about making the most of it. And sometimes that looks like we take the direct flight. That's a little bit more expensive. Um, we take the early morning flight, even though it totally sucks to get up at 3am. But when you when your flight leaves at 6 a.m., then you're like in your hotel in New Orleans by, you know, noon. Um, we try really hard to like stay in the vacation or travel mindset, even on like the last day of the trip, because I think it's really easy. You know, if you're gone for a week for the last day to sort of just get absorbed with like packing and checking out and then like you're at the airport and you're already checking your email and you're already like replying to you know, your boss. Um, so we try really hard to like stay in the vacation mindset until we are literally like back in the door of our house. Huh. Um, and I would also say, I know that for a lot of people, um, travel can feel expensive, but there are so many ways that you can make it more affordable. Like I'm a huge proponent of, um, Airbnbs because you get a lot more for your money and you can cook there, which will save you tons of money. Um, you can house swap with friends. So then it's free. Um, there are just so many things that you can do that will save you money and make it possible for you tra to travel more with the money and time that you do have. Do you have any tricks for choosing destinations that are awesome without being obvious? I mean, I talked to so many Europeans and it's like, yeah, I went to the US. I went to Las Vegas and, and Los Angeles and, and San Francisco. And it's like, oh, okay, well, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot more to the US. Yeah. Um, yes. do, do you have any strategies? I mean, obviously there's some places... You have to go to D.C. at some point, you know, uh, see some beaches, go to New York. What about some of the counterintuitive places? How do you find those? Um, well, I swear by, and I know that you've talked to them on your podcast, I love the website livability.com. Um, and livability encourages people to move to and travel to small to mid-sized cities. And by mid-sized, like Minneapolis is on that list because the – the population of Minneapolis proper is, I think, only 350,000. So there are plenty of cities that they highlight um, that are still like big cities with big airports. But they do a really good job of introducing people to cities that you might not have heard of. Like, again, you guys, Paducah, Kentucky. I know that name sounds so dumb, 
<laughs> but I swear it is beautiful. Bloomington, Indiana is gorgeous. Like there are so many sort of underappreciated cities. And when you go to those underappreciated cities, your, your tourism dollars mean more to the people. Like they're excited that you're there. They're not jaded. Like when you go to New York, <laughs> New Yorkers are not particularly enamored of any tourist. But if you go to Omaha, they're excited that you're there. They're thankful that you're there. They want to tell you all about it. You go to Cleveland, they want to tell you where all the good stuff is. And it's also a lot more affordable because, you know, places, New York and San Francisco are incredibly expensive. Bloomington, Indiana is not incredibly expensive. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. And that livability, you set me up with Winona at, at livability. That was a super popular episode from last season. Oh, that's season. great. Yeah, I, I think in part because I'm a fan of it. Like I live in Kansas, so you know nobody would ever come to Kansas because it's sexy, but I like Kansas. So yeah, part because of my enthusiasm, but part because of just the logic and the fact that you can find amazing places for so cheap if you just mm-hmm. don't go to the obvious places. Yes, yes. Like, we all know San Diego's awesome, but there are plenty of other places to go. For sure, for sure. Okay, uh, last question. Um, I noticed you sort of addressed this in a blog entry. The whole idea of taking your travel attitude home, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's something that I address in vagabonding, and I think it's that's something that's a little bit underappreciated. People aren't really sure what to do. How do you maintain the attitude of travel when you get home? And what kind of advice do you give people who who want to take that energy and excitement and openness towards learning home with them? Well, for me, a lot of travel, like the benefits of travel come down to, I don't know if novelty is the right word, but just um, having an open mind and making an effort to explore Because I think for all of us, there are so many things, especially if you've lived in a city for five or more years, we all have things in that city that we know are great, but we haven't checked out. And so a lot of it is just making an effort to do that. Um, Like I could tell you there are probably like 10 places in Minneapolis that when people come to travel, when they travel here, they go there. They're the Instagram hotspots. Like I could I could count off my fingers. These are the Instagram hotspots in Minneapolis. And so this summer, when it finally isn't, you know, negative 30 anymore, I really look forward to going to these places that people are so excited about that I as a local have have failed to engage with. So I think a lot of it is just making an active effort to explore your city and making time for it. Like I know it's super tempting. I mean, I'm right there with with everybody who does this. Like I know it's really tempting on the weekends, like, ugh, you know, like we have to repaint the fence and, you know, like let's catch up on homeland. And it's really easy to sort of like allow errands or day-to-day, you know, obligations to get in the way. But I think it's really nice to to make an active effort to explore your city and appreciate the things about it that that tourists appreciate. I, I think that's a great example. The whole um, catch up on homeland thing. I mean, if you were if you were in Shanghai, would you would you watch another yeah. episode? Oh my of, god! Of, of course not. Right. So I think sometimes we're just so used to our own patterns at home that yeah. we, we fall back on the the watching the homeland thing or, or farting around with our phone. When in fact, if we were a little bit more touristy, if we were a little bit more if we were more engaged in embracing the parts of our own home that we've never even seen, then that mm-hmm. can be a, a good attitude to have. Yep, absolutely. Where can we find you online, Sarah? And what do you have going on? Um, so my website is yesandyes.org. I am most active on, on social media. I'm most active on Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram stories. Um, and I would say in terms of what I have going on, the 
thing that I'm doing that is that people really love is I have a live um, course that I run. It's a five-week program that helps people reduce their impulse spending and increase their earning, which if you are somebody who's trying to save up for travel, um, it is very helpful. It's called Bank Boost. It costs $57 and people regularly bring in between $700 and $10,000 in five wow. weeks. I know. And these are like these are not like necessarily online business people who like run a sale. These are like teachers and professors and social workers. That's easy to forget about too. Sometimes that you can create that travel nest egg. Yeah. Just changing your habits a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Like there, and there are a lot of things. One of the things that we talk about and something that I actually think about a lot when I travel is like, how can I, how can I do the thing that I want? How can I feel the way I want at a lower price point? And also understanding like, where are the points in my life where I'm un unwilling to compromise? Like, no, I do really want a $5 latte from this specific cafe. And no, I'm not willing to like bring my own coffee in a travel mug. Because I think the thing is, especially with spending is not, not every latte, not every hotel, not every day tour is created equal. Like maybe, you know, this hotel cost $80 and it was, you know, like you booked it on purpose and the rooms were beautiful and it was in a neighborhood that you loved. And this hotel was also $80 and you just, you know, booked it because you hadn't planned correctly and it was terrible. So we also work through like making for sure that your money is buying the things that you want it to and that your values are aligned with your spending. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Sarah Von Bargen's travel advice at her Yes and Yes website, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.